Co. Welcome to the Aloha Friday Conversation, Art, Culture, and Ideas in Hawaii. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Today, we take a distinctly local look at anti-Asian hate. Along the way, we'll play tasty selections from saxophonist Gabe Baltazar. This friendly, quiet, local saxophone master, he's 91 now, and will add so much to the Aloha Friday Conversation. Now we'll just jump in here with Jonathan Okamura, Professor Emeritus, UH Manoa. He's an expert on race and ethnic studies. Okamura says Asians are, quote, perpetual foreigners in the U.S., and this wave of hate shouldn't be really any kind of surprise. Okamura says it's part of a blame game Asian Americans have gotten tangled in before, blamed for the Pearl Harbor bombing, blamed for the Detroit auto slowdown, blamed now for the COVID-19 pandemic. But in Hawaii, with 37% of the population identifying as Asian alone, it's different, right? Oh yeah, I would think so. The, the, the term oftentimes used is um, a comfort level that one can have being Asian American and not just Japanese Americans, other Asian American groups. There is violence though, there is racism. You know, the victims to me, well, obviously it's Micronesia. There's racial blame pinning directed at them too, um, because they're seen as taking public resources that they don't deserve, such as public housing or mistakenly welfare benefits, which they haven't been entitled to since 1996. But people still believe that they uh, come here in order to get uh, federal welfare benefits. So you find terms like leeches, cockroaches, right, and pigeon directed against Micronesians because they're seen as unfairly using public resources, including public housing. So they're, they're victims of racial violence in the schools or joke telling, one of the most extreme forms of uh, racist dehumanizing that we seen in Hawaii. The jokes are much worse than the kinds of jokes directed against Filipinos, for example. Uh, Filipinos wear purple clothes or bright clothes in general, or they speak English uh, with a strong accent. They're lowly employed. At least they're still human beings. Nobody's calling cockroach. What do you think about the type of joke telling and stuff there used to be among, I mean, have you been following what happened on Kauai with the police chief there, squinting his eyes, faking an accent, Japanese accent, and so on? If he's not fired, he should be suspended. There should be some penalty. He's a public in a position of authority. There are state laws banning that kind of behavior. The mayor of Kauai said, you know, we, we all grew up listening to Frank DeLima, kid people about stuff like that. Maybe this isn't the kind of talk that's uh, appropriate for someone who's the chief of police. But he sort of hinted that actually this kind of exchange really actually, however, is okay. What do you say about that? that. That kind of humor of kidding each other about cultural characteristics that existed to such a greater extent before. In a sense, you know, John, we were much more intimate with each other as a whole in those days. Is it verboten now? It is among uh, people I know and my students because they've had the benefit of taking ethnic studies courses. Look, 
Who's the butt of the jokes? Who's the one being laughed at? Who makes the jokes? Who tells the jokes? The victims? Are Filipinos telling jokes about themselves? Is, anyone... Is it okay if they do? If they say those there, things? There are, about them? there are these uh, Filipino comedians who make a living. They're on the continent more so than in Hawaii. Huh? Uh, but the jokes do not have the same content as the jokes in Hawaii. The jokes on the continent by these Filipino comedians are generally about Filipino family members, you know, my mother, etc. They're not the really demeaning kinds of jokes that people make about Filipinos here. No? Or how, how is it so much meaner here? Back in the old days, I mean, you're supposed to laugh, you know, you're supposed to be able to take right. it. That just showed that you were comfortable with it. Yeah. Right. Okay, so, so for Filipinos, and we're talking going back more than 40 years ago, you're talking about the emergence of what was called um, Kanaka com comedy or ethnic humor in Hawaii in the 70s. Huh? This is when uh, for a Filipino, local Filipino, to laugh at the jokes meant that you were local. You get the joke. You weren't harmed by the joke. You laugh with your friends you know? because you wanted to demonstrate to your local friends, non-Filipino, that you weren't an immigrant Filipino because there was this very wide division in the Filipino community that emerged in the 70s with the arrival of the post-65 immigrants. And for the local Filipinos, they really wanted to demonstrate that they were local, that they shared this common local culture with their other local friends, Hawaiian, Japanese, Chinese, whatever the case may be. And they were very different from their immigrants who were coming. And the jokes were about immigrants, faking the accent, for example, making fun about the clothes that they wear, the jobs that they perform. And so the locals are saying, well, the local Filipino would laugh because, hey, that's not about me. Of course I can laugh, just like you guys. Let's listen to what Okamura is talking about. Here's comedian Frank DeLima, who specializes in what he calls plantation humor, humor rooted in plantation work life, at one time a commonality across the Hawaiian Islands. The missionaries came, and they saw the land was fertile, and they needed workers. They asked the Hawaiians, and the Hawaiians said, we busy. <laughs> so they went overseas, and they brought back the Chinese, the Japanese, the Filipinos, the Portuguese, the Filipinos, the Okinawans, the Filipinos, the Filipinos and Filipinos and Filipinos and Filipinos. Do we have any Filipinos here? Filipinos, be proud! Raise your hand! Yeah! In Waipaku, in old Waipaku, the Manong Slituna. In Waipaku, in old Waipaku, the Manong Slituna. Comedian Frank DeLima. 
And he's not the only example of ethnic humor. He's just the classic example, because for years he performed in Waikiki, and Frank DeLima's student enrichment programs took him to schools across the state with the goal of developing positive attitudes and behaviors. Mayor Kawakami saw him on Kauai on one of those visits. Professor Emeritus John Okamura is an expert on race and ethnicity. I wrote about these jokes in my book, Ethnicity and Inequality in Hawaii. I had to listen to numerous comedians. Every local comedian in Hawaii had a Filipino joke, dog-eating joke, rather. There were Chinese jokes as well? Of course. What is it? You know what it is, right? Stingy. Is that yeah. the idea? A very old stereotype that emerged before World War II. Yeah. Japanese, it's yes, people move like schools of fish. So maybe it's good for us to laugh at these caricatures of ourselves. Huh? It has a different impact on different groups of people, depending on how your group is perceived in Hawaii, how subject it is to stereotyping. Uh, that's the difference. And also how members of the group are impacted. Filipinos, and I know this from doing research on Filipinos, for more than 40 years. This is my fieldwork in Kalihi. And I know this also from teaching a course on ethnic identity at the university for about 30 years. I had numerous conversations in my office with Filipino students. And one of the dominant themes that comes out with students or with other Filipinos I know is shame about being Filipino. You're talking about like a built-in prejudice against Filipinos that, that is so part of the f fabric here that we don't really see it. Well, I, I don't think non-Filipinos are necessarily aware of this notion of shame that prevails among them, huh? shame about being Filipino, ashamed of their parents if they were immigrants, for example, huh. spoke with accents or were lowly employed. So this leads to the disavowal of being Filipino claims to be local, claims to be Spanish. Is it something we can have fun with in some, have you ever heard Sleigh Ride, Frank DeLima's song? It is so, that it's just so colorful. How can we be, how can we be colorful without being pejorative? Well, because it's not truthful. His Filipino Christmas song, 1994, issued a month after Cayetano became the first Filipino-American governor, not just in Hawaii, in the entire United States. And he still is the only Filipino-American governor. So it's like, what difference does it make if we elect a Filipino-American governor? Filipinos still can be subject to this racist stereotyping and people will still laugh at them. Here, an excerpt from that Filipino Christmas song. Frank DeLima sings with a member of a local news team. That was my favorite Christmas song growing up as a kid. And he's been singing it all yeah. morning since he These heard Frank was going to be on. I'm not trying to hurt anybody. This is us, Hawaii. <laughs> And we'll hear from Mr. DeLima ahead, but Okamura wants to make a finer point. See, DeLima also, you know, he's, he's supposedly using these Filipino terms. They're just made up terms. 
He's not saying anything when he spouts them in his Purple Danube song, for example. Dun, 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 What's dun, purple dun, and brown? Book, 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 book. What squats on the ground? Book, 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 book. Holds knife to your throat. Book, so he's just book, kind of having fun with it. No. Yeah. Or. But it's not honest. He's not really using Ilocano words, expressions. That's why it's called mock Filipino. So someone outside of the culture, it's harder for, for them to get away with stuff, right? Is there a recipe for approaching another culture with authenticity? Well, this is what social scientists do. We don't No, but then, and, and having it, like an you know, art that, form out of it or, or comedy exactly. and making comedy out of it. I think there is. I, I used to like Booga Booga because it was not spiteful. Huh? It was funny without making fun of people in a demeaning way. I'm thinking especially of uh, rap replicants jokes. He made fun of Japanese. He made fun of Japanese names, other Japanese okay. roll call. How is that okay? Hey, no, 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 but really, isn't that hilarious, John, really, when he does that, that Japanese one? The, the roll call? Oh, yeah. yeah, that's the what I'm saying. Call. Because it's not spiteful. So he's making fun what? of that the names. He's making fun of the way of talking. Somehow you find it not spiteful. Hmm. Hmm. Because Japanese pronounce their names like that too. Tanimizu! Mizu Yoshi! Yoshimura! Murakami! Kamikawa! Kawamatsu! Matsutaka! Takahashi! Hashimoto! Motooka! Okafune! Funashige! Shigeyasu, Yasutake, Takamini, Minahira, Hirayama, Yamanaka, Nakashima, Shimakuro, Kurosato, Satagata, Gatagona. Oh, gosh. So what we're talking about is, do you think race is different in Hawaii than it is on the continent then? Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. See, my, my argument is, in Hawaii, we don't talk about race. Yeah? This is the reason why I emphasize ethnicity as the dominant organizing principle, not race. What do you mean by ethnicity? Cultural uh, characteristics? Why I say ethnicity is because people in Hawaii think of the different constituent groups as ethnic groups, not races. And they think of the groups as differing in terms of culture, less so phenotype, physical characteristics that define race in the continent. So that's the reason we don't have the term Asian American which is a racial category, very commonly used on the continent, right? You're saying that in Hawaii, what we have is Japanese, Chinese, Korean, because we actually can see deeper into the culture and we see the differences between those ethnic groups. Right, right. And we think of culture as distinguishing these groups one from the other, even though those cultural differences are quite minimal, except if those groups have immigrant segments like Filipinos or Koreans or to some extent Chinese. No? Mm -hmm. How do you know the cultural differences are somewhat minimal? High rate of intermarriage. How could people intermarry at such a high rate here if their differences were so significant? Well, it's, do you think the continent has, has something to learn from us in terms of our perspective that might be helpful here? In local context, people will develop 
an awareness, a knowledge, an experience of dealing with different ethnic groups such that they become more aware of those differences rather than relying on racial categories. So a place like Cupertino, you know, with a majority Asian American population, I'm sure many whites know the difference between Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, Filipino Americans, and Asian Indians who are otherwise racialized as Asian. In Southern California, people may be aware of the differences between Mexicans and Guatemalans and Hondurans because of the large numbers of those populations. Whereas Hawaii, people might just think of them as Mexican-American. Uh, but how do you get people to develop that kind of familiarity, this willingness to become aware of these cultural differences? Do you think Hawaii has a message about living together, about ethnic groups living together? Oh, God. You know, <laughs> that, that's... A, you know, that's what, that's no, no, what people no. keep asking. No, no. Yeah, no, that is true. Th this issue comes up all the time, the idea of Hawaii as a multicultural paradise where everybody gets along. Hawaii as a model for the rest of the country. So this started with Fuchs's book, Hawaii Pono, the last paragraph. Huh? Um, Hawaii has this lesson to, to teach the, the country, if not the world, about how people from different races can get along with each other in equality and democracy. So that has been a very dominant theme about Hawaii in the past 60 years. It's repeated constantly over the years. Sunset Magazine. But even by academics, that's the problem. Like Ron Takaki, you know, the nation's expert in multiculturalism, looked to Hawaii for answers on race. Right? Even though people don't talk about race in Hawaii. Alabama. You don't sound like you buy it. Of course not. You want to learn how to treat Native Hawaiians from coming to Hawaii? UH Manoa Professor Emeritus Jonathan Okamura is an expert on race and ethnicity. His publications include a recent study on ethnic inequality in public education in Hawaii. Coming up, we hear from a local ethnic joke expert. Stereotyping is nothing new in Hawaii, and if there's an expert on ethnic jokes, it's comedian Frank DeLima. 
We talked for nearly an hour recently about ethnic humor, and he agreed to record a statement for HPR listeners. Delima calls that humor plantation humor, born in the first generation of local comedians. The barefoot bar crowd, you know, it's Sterling Mossman, Lucky Luck, still a lot of recordings around. It was humor informed by plantation life, where neighbors had garage parties and everybody dropped by, somebody would bust out an ukulele, and Delima says in every crowd there'd be a comedian. Often, it was a guy who could do imitations. Here's Frank's statement. Aloha, this is Frank Delima, and uh, I'd like to talk start a little bit about humor in Hawaii. And uh, I believe it, ca- it came from the plantation days uh, and the fact that we have so many ethnic groups that had come here to Hawaii to live. And eventually, they're going to start meeting each other. And, uh, you know, from there, they get to know each other. And there's always going to be the, the imitators, no matter what group you, you are part of, you know, no matter... Um, family or friend or whatever it may be, there's going to be the comedians. Even though they're not professional, they would still be comedians. You know that. You know, a lot of people know that family member or um, a friend is very funny. And and that happened way back. That's human nature. And a lot of the humor comes from imitating or... Uh, recognizing colloquialisms and phraseologies and, and um, you know, they pick it up and then they imitate it and they put it into skits, into funny, funny skits and, and jokes. And uh, one of the things about jokes is that, you know, the punchline and, you know, you have to be creative to, to do that kind of stuff. And there are people out there that have the imagination that, that does that stuff. And this will happen. I'm one of them. And so is all the other comedians that exist in our world. But comedy is mirroring true life. And so it's important that um, I, I tell people that if you want to get into uh, comedy professionally, then you're going to have to understand that whatever jokes you tell and whatever skits you do and whatever you... Um, imitations you do, um, you have to expect someone or, or a group or whatever it may be that may not like it. But that's part of being a professional comedian. It comes with the territory. And uh, because, you know, it's mirroring society, mirroring people. And, uh, but if you're non-professional, then you, the best thing to do, and this is what I, I tell the kids, I say, you know, um, go up and ask the person first, would you like to be entertained? And would you like to hear a joke? And you tell them what it's about, okay? People like jokes, but they don't like all jokes. So, you know, you tell them, hey, you want to hear a joke about a cow? You get time, you get time. You can hear a joke about a cow. And the, and the person, no, I don't like jokes about cows. I say, oh, okay, okay. How about an elephant? Yeah, yeah, I like jokes about elephant. Then you tell them the joke. Or you just move on and find someone that has uh, that, that type of humor. So it's important that we laugh. That's the main thing. And we just find where we can get that material to help us to laugh. 
and uh, just look through the all the different types of of comedy, and find the one you like. And the ones you don't like, just let other people who may like it enjoy it. You just enjoy yours. Let other people enjoy theirs. And that's what makes life much easier and fun. Aloha. Comedian Frank DeLima. He continues to write and perform, most recently a song about COVID-19 restrictions. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. HPR brings you vital information from the islands and around the world. It brings you music that enriches and uplifts. And it keeps you company, providing moments of levity and joy along with the news. Whatever your day looks like, stay connected at home with your smart speaker. It's easy. Just say Play KHPR for HPR 1 or Play KIPO for HPR 2. On the next Science Friday, cows put out a lot of methane gas, a huge contributor to global warming. But a few ounces of seaweed added to their feed seems to have a huge impact. We have seen a reduction of methane emissions by up to 80% and sometimes even more than that. How seaweed could be a game changer for livestock emissions on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting Others, an exhibition of isolationist-era Japanese prints that considers the importance of cross-cultural understanding. HonoluluMuseum.org Aloha mai, my friends. It's the Aloha Friday Conversation. I'm Noetani Gawa. Mahalo, HPR members, for making all this possible. We're continuing our dive into Asian bias, local style, in a minute. But first, mahalo to all those who braved the downtown Chinatown neighborhood board meeting last night at Aloha Tower. Council member Carol Fukunaga was there as usual, and representatives of the mayor, including housing director Anton Krucki, the mayor's point man on Chinatown. Mr. Krucki presented an outline of the mayor's planned draft plans for the new Kekalike Mall improvements. Seven years in the making were also unveiled last night, and we'll talk more about this next week. But it was a fascinating night. Artist, style setter, Aralelo. Creative director for Nella Media was there. She will be joining the Downtown Chinatown Neighborhood Board this summer. Arts organizer Miley Meyer is on the Neighborhood Board ballot in Makiki. Voting codes for Neighborhood Boards go out April 23rd, voting until 
May 21st. Artists are getting into civic participation. And Jeff Kim now is a tech developer working at that intersection of civics and technology. He was one of the organizers for last week's rally and march against hate. He's a civic tech developer who's lived all across the U.S., on the East Coast, then Los Angeles and Chicago, before moving to Honolulu seven years ago. I asked Jeff, did you ever experience any anti-Asian hate or even vibes growing up? Yeah, I've definitely experienced, at least on the continent, plenty of um, um, anti-Asian sentiments. One very notable experience that I had was with somebody, I thought we were really close and I thought we had a lot of mutual respect for each other. And then one day I was, you know, I saw him just passing by on the street and he said, hey, Jeff, my favorite Asian friend. And yeah, you know, and, and it was a really, it just always stuck with me because, you know, and I, and I, and I told him and I, and immediately I said, why, why can't I just be your favorite friend, period, you know? And he, and he just kind of laughed it off, you know, and I just, yeah. And I mean, that, that's just a very minor example, obviously, but it's things like minor. that. that it, I mean, that that's really different, Jeff, from, from a total stranger shunning you or acting like they don't know you. But when it's somebody that you think you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's why it, it cut pretty deep. And um, yeah, and it's probably the first thing that came up when you asked me that question. So I definitely have experienced discrimination for being Asian, period. And um, yeah, I've been, you know, in Hawaii for about uh, seven years. So um, how's it different here? Oh, obviously, because for East Asian people, people who look like me, I find that, yeah, because we are the majority, you know, Asian people in general are the majority here. It's not something that I have to really think about somebody thinking about my, you know, my ethnicity before my personality. Jeff, how does this work on the continent? How does each day feel different? Yeah, something that I realized when I first got to Hawaii was a literal thought, involuntary thought entered my head that's told me, wow, I've spent so much of my life before this just subconsciously combating being a stereotype um, on a daily basis. Yeah. And in in so many words, quote unquote, trying to prove uh, that I am worthy of being considered, you know, quote unquote, just an American and not an Asian American. And, and once again, just Jeff, not Asian Jeff. So what is the stereotype, as- Jeff? That you're kind what of is, combating all the time. Yeah, what do people think you are without you doing anything? Yeah, so like in the in the continent, um, a lot of that came down to uh, a lot of the the cliches um, that you see in movies and so forth, uh, where Asian people are stereotyped in a quote unquote positive way of oh you're so smart, you're so mathematically inclined. So that's one way. In, in some of these, you know, that was what, bad or what? Uh, how did that hit you? Yeah, so that may seem like, right, for a lot of people that may seem like, oh, well, it's the opposite of a negative statement. So what's there to complain about? But, you know, I had direct experience with this and I can tell you what it felt like. Um, I was in high school and um, I was in probably like pre-calculus at the time and somebody who was taking multivariable calculus came up to me and, you know, just assumed he said, hey, Jeff, can you can you help me with my multivariable? And so... It was in that moment that I realized, to get to your question, that yes, it's it's quote unquote flattering to be thought of as quote unquote superior intellect by default. But ultimately, what I felt in that moment wasn't flattery. What I felt in the moment was being of utility to somebody that I'm a that I'm a tool, 
you know, in that sense. And it's like, oh, so you just want to talk to me because you think, because you think you can get X, Y, Z from me. And overall, as far as answering a question, yeah, that is what I certainly, uh, part of that, that effort that I put into combat stereotypes was to not be just kind of, you know, passive, if you would, and just go along with a, a request like that. And because I find that that's also an expectation of people who do promote, you know, these stereotypes that not only Asian women, but Asian men too, that they're submissive and, and, you know, and that gets a lot into sort of the territory of this concept of the model minority and so forth that like, in so many words, as, as this one sociology professor put it really casually to me, you know, the model minority is someone who is like the white man, but does not surpass the white man. Whoa. Wow. I, I'm trying to, I'm really trying to imagine what it's like living this. Oh, so how did you react? Because I've seen Asian hip hop stars and they've got a crew, a posse of five, usually African-American guys behind them and they're swinging the other way to try to combat this stereotype. What did you do? Yeah. Um, I went down a similar route actually um, very early on, like, Definitely since the end of the elementary school, I, 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 I remember being very intentional about saying to myself in so many words that I, yeah, I will not be a stereotype and that, yeah. And I think that being in that reactionary mindset, I also was, you know, kind of, I guess, uh, attracted to the idea of trying to be more quote unquote American bottom line, be able to be able to fit in in so many words and so yeah so I I didn't you know I actually like intentionally many times was you know a poor student yeah and did things that were cool you know like cut class or something like that or whatever or things that you know my white American you know uh peers would would find cool at the time and, and you did um, it with white people I did it with accepted all, yeah and and, and, it, and it was starting to work yeah you know, I, I, I didn't really hang out with Asian people that much because definitely where I was growing up at the time, Asian people just kind of stuck to themselves. Oh. Things were pretty divided. This was suburbs of LA and, you know, mid to, to late 90s. So yeah, things were pretty divided then. And, uh, and yeah, and I just, I so much wanted not to be grouped into anything and to be able to, yeah, be able to enjoy all the, the benefits that being someone who is not stereotyped can enjoy and say, hey, if I want to be, you know, like from like a teenage mentality, if I want to be like punk, I'm going to be punk. If I want to be, you know, hip hop, I want to be hip hop, whatever, you know, and I was trying to be kind of an outlier. But yeah, those are some of the the, the ways that it, it definitely impacted my life decisions. Thanks for, you know, teasing that out, because a lot of that is adolescence in general, you mm -hmm. know, coming up against what you're feeling from the outside. Mm -hmm. Huh. So there's something that we are experiencing here that could blind us to what's going on on the continent. Definitely. And I find that, especially having lived here for a while now, you know, a lot of folks still seem to believe in what I've considered the myth of uh, Hawaii being a melting pot, uh, which I figure, you know, even just highlighting the fact that so many people here um, discriminate against, you know, Micronesian people as, as one kind of elephant in the room, you know, is, is, is clear uh, example that it's um, not the case that this is a melt, you know, a, a paradise of diversity and a, and a melting pot. And yeah, and that's why, you know, to a lot of people, you know, have definitely asked us 
why did you put on this event when Hawaii is majority Asian? I mean, do we have anti-Asian hate problems here? You know, and I find, and my teammates would probably agree that um, we do. And um, just because you're Asian yourself doesn't mean that you are immune from discriminating against other Asians. For instance, you know, Asian immigrants from one country discriminate against Asian immigrants from other countries all the time. You know, as somebody of Korean descent, I definitely heard plenty of yeah, discriminating words coming out of my parents' mouths, you know, about other cultures that were Asian as well. I know what and you other mean. Way, yeah. There's a pivotal exhibit right now at Bishop Museum, you know, where they're trying to deal with their race's past and really proving that racial categories are really uh, non-existent. Where does this leave us, Jeff? As I see it, I find that it, it will be a bit different than movements of the past in that this will be, I find, a much more intersectional movement moving forward, where it's not just about, you know, stop Asian hate, or if you're Black, stop, you know, Black hate or Black Lives Matter, right? On and on. As one of our speakers said, you know, it's about our collective liberation, that anybody who is experiencing injustice in this world, period, you know? So how would that come home in Hawaii? Yeah, so... Kind of to talk about the you know anti-Haitian sentiments and so forth, bringing it to the context of Hawaii, I really want to talk about this concept of the model minority. Yeah, and I mean, as mentioned before, you know, just because you're Asian doesn't mean you're immune from discriminating against other Asians. And ultimately, this concept of the model minority, which for our listeners who are not very familiar with it, uh, is is basically, like I said earlier, in casual terms, acting, you know, trying to become like white people, but without surpassing white people. And in doing so, it creates kind of a wedge between Asian people and Black people and people of color in general, because it's kind of like who will compete for the approval of white people and kind of gain that approval first. Yeah, the model minority ultimately aids in promoting white supremacy as we see it, you know, as I see it. And as an Asian American author, Frank Chin put it, whites love us because we're not Black. And as Asian people, more than ever now, we need to reckon with that statement and all that implies. And especially from all, like, yeah, just all these comments that we got of just like, oh, like, why are you doing this here? This isn't the mainland, you know, that that just because of reason, questions like that, just realize that if Asian people want to be able to stop Asian hate, then we also need to stop Black hate and stop Latina hate and stop hating women and so on. And, and yeah, it is an intersectional struggle and we are dealing with the larger issue of white supremacy period, uh, which can be manifested through being a model minority. Jeff Kim is a civic technology developer in Honolulu. He's team lead for the Honolulu Hub of the Sunrise Movement, a climate action group that works across areas affected by climate change. For example, this climate group is joining a Good Jobs for All Day of Action on April 7th. idea Kim referred to of intersectionality. The word was coined over 30 years ago by Kimberly Crenshaw, a law professor who studies race and civil rights. It's been gaining traction ever since. Intersectionality has been called really dangerous, a, quote, conspiracy theory of victimization. But look at it. Intersectionality refers to the way race, class, gender, privilege, and other factors intersect in given situations. 
We had a clear example of intersectionality at the Stop Asian Hate rally last Saturday. East Oahu Senator Stanley Chang was the third speaker scheduled. His remarks were posted later on the Honolulu Youth Liberation Front's Twitter account. This is Senator Chang. I was standing in line at a convenience store. I decided I didn't want what I was going to get. I walked out the store because there was a long line, and a guy in front of the store stopped me. And he said, stop. And I was like, okay. He said, what's in your bag? And so I opened my bag. And as I opened my bag, I realized, oh, wait a minute. This guy thinks that I stole something from this store. And in that moment, he didn't see all my fancy degrees. He didn't see that I was an elected official in the state of Hawaii. He didn't see that as a light-skinned East Asian person, I was actually higher up on the totem pole than he was. Senator Stanley Chang has said he was trying to make a statement about hierarchy and privilege. He certainly did. He was savaged for these remarks, and he followed up by apologizing profusely that same day on that same Twitter feed and elsewhere. Race and ethnicity expert John Okamura told me Chang's words and attitude are simply racist. But the marvel of the whole thing is how unconscious we can be of our own attitudes. When they are pointed out, we can correct them. At the legislature, Majority Leader Della Al-Beladi introduced two resolutions, H.R. 111 and H.C.R. 112. They declare that racism is a public health crisis. Senate Concurrent Resolution 66 condemns anti-Asian sentiment and actions. Have you been to a march or rally lately? I have, and I find I run into people who are doing it for the first time. It's an education. (laughs) And last Saturday's young people, strollers, and handmade signs bode well for the future. I walked up to a young woman with a great sign, Mylin Yamamoto Tansinko. She turned out to be one of the rally organizers. She's a local business owner. And I asked her how she feels Asian hate plays out here in Hawaii. And she was saying it can be subtler, like microaggressions that people hardly notice. I'm also guilty, you know, of like these microaggressions that's making me think about how I made fun of people in my own high school. And, you know, we're, we're Hawaii, we're all like, oh yeah, you know, we make fun of each other, that's how it is. But I realize like it can hurt people. So it's moments like these make me reflect on how little things like, what the chief of police said in Kauai and how it can escalate. But we were all supposed to laugh along and make like, oh, uh, uh." that showed we were good sports, right? Hey, but it's maybe it's like bullying. Exactly, it can can be something like, oh, you speak really great English, or I love your eyes, the way that they're shaped. Oh, I know what you mean. Thanks, Mom. My mom's here today. This is my mom's first rally. Mom, why did you come out today? Yeah, you made me. (laughs) (laughs) Bodies count. (laughs) I didn't know there was only going to be the three of us. 
some, you know, like this whole week, I, it's been nonstop planning with our other organizers. So to hear and see the community come out in solidarity against Asian hate, like it's, it's really beautiful and validating. And I, I really see a path forward to continue movements like this. So why are these people interested? Are they particularly... I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to speak for them, but I know we all showed up here for the same reason as to stop Asian hate and to stop hate here in Hawaii. <laughs> Mylan Yamamoto Tansinko. The Stop Asian Hate Rally was organized by Corona Care Hawaii, Honolulu Youth Liberation Front, Sunrise Movement, and Young Progressives Demanding Action. Miley, uh, Mikey Inoue. A remarkable filmmaker, co-founder of Corona Care Hawaii, emceed the day. It was great to see him there. And the sign Mylan was holding said, Hate is a virus. Aloha is the cure. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. You've come to rely on public radio for real information about the things that are important to you, whether it's food or politics, classical music, or your local news. And it goes the other way around, too. Public radio relies on you. Because without your financial support, we wouldn't be here. So please, take a moment and become a sustaining member of this public radio station right now. It's easy, and it'll make you feel great. Thank you. Today, we've had the pleasure of Gabe Baltazar's alto saxophone weaving through our stories. Gabriel Ruiz Hiroshi Baltazar Jr. was born 1929 in Hilo. His mother was Japanese, born on a plantation. His dad was a musician who moved here from the Philippines. Gabe started playing clarinet at 11, switched later to alto sax. And during World War II, great bands went through Hickam. The music scene in Chinatown, Honolulu was hopping. Baltazar saw it all. He won the Filipino Art Lovers Club Scholarship to Punahou School of Music at one point. Finally, grad McKinley and went on to the Peabody Conservatory in Maryland. Grabe toured with the innovative and influential Stan Kenton Orchestra for four years in its heyday, an Asian in a tight, competitive environment. One really pivotal thing Gabe has said was meeting Charlie Parker in New York City in 1948. Gabe said the conversation inspired him the rest of his career. I mean, you may notice some similarities, Gabe's sinewy melodies. He returned to Hawaii and played in the Royal Hawaiian Band for 28 years. Importantly, Gabe Baldazar was the generous center of Hawaii's jazz scene. He welcomed students, fans, beginners, so humble, always. He created and nurtured generations of jazz lovers here. We have seen him in tiny clubs that disappeared after he played. I mean, these clubs don't last long. He played in showrooms. He played on high school stages with an army of young jazz players behind him. Gabe played 
generously, always, with that sure swing. He's 91 now, living on Oahu. Mahalo, Gabe. Blues from the 2008 album Slack Sax. Gabe Baltazar, and you will recognize his compadres here Henry Yoshino, Wayne Dunstan, Clyde Pound, Jeff Henriksen, Bart Basconi, Al Barty, and Cyrus Green. <laughs> A quick note for your weekend as we head out the door. Keala Kakua printmaker Mayumi Oda is in Honolulu with works from her exuberant Goddess series. She's launching her new book, Sarasvati's Gift at Namea Hawaii Ward Center, tomorrow at 1. You'll find her works A Splash of Life. The book is about her journey toward peace and awakening. <laughs> Gee, well, that's about it for this Aloha Friday once again. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Really appreciate it. And we love to hear from you at any point. You can call the TalkBack line, that number, 808-792-8217. We'd love to know what you thought of the show today, how you feel. Write us, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. This program is definitely a kako thing, lovingly produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subiono, Lillian Sang, and Jason Ubai, also behind the scenes. Many thanks to Bill Dorman. Our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808, I'm Noe Tanigawa. Catherine Cruz is back on Monday to pick up the conversation. Until then, let's take care of each other. And remember, have a happy Aloha Friday. Thank you.